The information expressed in the following podcast is intended for educational purposes only and was created by and belongs solely to Believe Limited and the Flow podcast and does not necessarily reflect the views of our sponsors. Please speak to your healthcare provider before making any medical decisions. Hi, I'm Jessica Richmond, and wow, what an episode we have for you this month. Welcome to Flow. I'm here with the great Christy Van Horn, and we want to know, how's your flow? We are so glad you're listening today. Christy, I am legit over the moon about this episode. Me freaking too. I'm so excited. (laughs) Our guests today are two brilliant women, a patient advocate from the White Dress Project, and holy earth mama goddess, Dr. Carrie Ann Perkins, OBGYN, an edutainer, influencer. Yeah. Hold on, everybody. We have two women who, after we spoke with them, we were crushing hard. Oh, yeah. This month, we are continuing the conversation from episode three about what is disordered. Uh, really think taking a look at what else could it be that's going on with my body? And we're going to take a deeper dive into other symptoms that could give individuals extreme periods. Yes. And our patient and physician today both talk about the importance of the patient physician relationship, which really just makes Christy and my heart's pitter patter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's get into it. Well, we are so lucky to have a representative from the White Dress Project. Listeners can find your organization's work on Instagram at We Can Wear White, on YouTube with some great informational videos um, under the White Dress Project. And Kim, hello. Hi, how are you? (laughs) So good. So glad to be talking to you today. So glad to be here. Thanks for being here today. So we're going to jump right into it. And you understand from the patient experience of dealing with extreme conditions uh, when it comes to menstruation, which is really what we talk about here on Flow. And we want to hear from your patient perspective what it's like to live with an extreme condition, such as you have fibroids, right? Yes, I have fibroids. Um, And I was diagnosed in 2015. Um, my situation with fibroids was really extreme. So I noticed that my periods drastically changed um, in the summer of 2015. Um, I would change my pads every 30 minutes. Um, I would have really large, heavy um, blood clots. Um, my, my periods would last two weeks or longer. They would, they were painful, but I normalized it in my head. Um, I didn't think anything was wrong. You know, these are not discussions that we have in my family or in society. Um, so it got to a point where several months later, um, my sister who happens to be, who happens to be a doctor came into town and she noticed that, I was really pale, like the palms of my hands were pale, the inside of my eyes were pale, and the inside of my mouth was pale. And she asked me, you know, what's going on? And then I told her the situation, you know, I said, I've been having really heavy bleeding um, during my periods for the past several months, you know, and for the past couple of weeks, I felt really weak. With every step that I took, I felt like I was going to pass out. 
you know, so she, she told me that I needed to go to the doctor, make an appointment, get some blood work done. Um, I got blood work done and my doctor called me with the results of the blood work. And she said, you need to go to the emergency room right now because your hemoglobin, which is your, your blood level is dangerously low. It is at a level of three and that is not conducive to life. That compelled me. You know, I did not question her without hesitation went to the emergency room. Um, they ran a host of different tests on me, um, including an echocardiogram on my heart because I also had a cough that would not go away. And they discovered that I had a lar enlarged heart. Um, it's called cardiomegaly because literally like the lack of blood in my body, my heart was compensating for that. Um, so it was working in overdrive to compensate for the lack of blood. So of course they attributed all of this to, at the time, um, one large fibroid that was on the surface of my uterus. And I needed a blood transfusion because had I not got a blood transfusion, I would have gone into cardiac arrest at any moment. So that's really extreme. And I, and I to go back to your question, sorry, that was just a long-winded way. No, thank you for sharing <laughs> yeah. with us. Yeah. You know, I just wanted to provide some context. People with fibroids, people with endometriosis, they're living and fighting several battles on a daily basis. You know, the first battle, of course, is the condition itself. And the second battle is, you know, living in a world that does not understand what you're going through on a daily basis. You know, in addition to, you know, the mental and physical toll that it takes on you, you have to battle the world, you know. So, you know, they really, unless you're in our shoes, you really don't understand the toll um, that having an extreme condition takes. And the fact that, you know, we feel sometimes like we don't have support as a result can really, really weigh us down. And people don't take our condition seriously, including uh, in many cases, the doctors who are supposed to treat us. <laughs> You know, um, medical gaslighting, you know, they dismiss our pain or minimize or outright dismiss our pain and our condition. And it's like, who do we have to turn to? You know, we feel alone and isolated. We feel like we're suffering in silence, you know, and that in essence is what it feels like um, to live with an extreme condition that nobody really fully understands unless they're living it themselves. First of all, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. I literally got chills. You mentioned that a lot of people in society don't trust your lived experiences and what you're dealing with and they don't understand. And I just want to say that thanks to people like you who come on the show and you know, you really help to spread awareness. So thank you for that. I do have one really quick follow-up question. When you said that this happened when you were in 2015, if you don't mind, how old were you at that time? Um, at that time I was 29. Okay. And you had never had any previous experience like Nothing this? At all. My periods were normal, you know, I'm, or what I thought was normal. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, and it's funny because my mom also suffered with fibroids, but we never talked about it until I was diagnosed until I ended up in the hospital and I was diagnosed you know I we just come from a culture where it's you, you just don't talk about issues like that right you suck it up move on and you know but it's it, it, it it's damaging so 
No, I, I wanted to follow up with that. Cause I think it's important that people know that, you know, it, it's not necessarily starting from, you know, puberty, it can happen at any time. So thank you for, for that. Yeah. And you know, every hero and heroic story has an origin tale. It sort of sounds like the, the lack of awareness and information may be part of the origin tale of the white dress project. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about how it began and how you got involved. Sure. So the White Dress Project was actually started in 2014 by Tanika Grape Albarn, who's my, my sister in the fight. A year before she started the organization, she underwent a myomectomy, which is a, the surgery to remove the fibroids. And they removed, the doctors removed 27 fibroids from wow. her uterus oh um, in gosh. 2013. After the surgery, while she was recovering, um, she quickly realized several things. You know, one, she realized how prevalent this condition is. You know, 70% of white women and 80% of black women will be diagnosed with fibroids by the age of 50. Two, despite that prevalence, she realized that there was a lack of awareness about this issue. Um, nobody was talking about it. Um, there's no support groups out there regarding this. There's just nothing out there regarding fibroids. So she decided to start it. You know, she actually initially started the White Dress Project to create a support group for herself. It ended up evolving into this, you know, organization that's dedicated to advocacy, education, and raising awareness um, about this issue. Um, and the white dress um, is a symbolic of hope because, you know, a lot of times when you're, when you have fibroids, the heavy menstrual bleeding really prevents you from wearing white or anything light because you fear having humiliating experiences. You know, you fear soiling your clothes in public, with, which happened to me on several occasions, by the way. Yeah, she started this movement. You know, that's what it is. You know, the white dress, she always emphasizes that the white dress is not a fashion statement, but it is a movement for change, a movement to raise awareness, um, and a movement to, to you know, create the change that is needed in this area so that women no longer feel like they have to suffer in silence with this condition. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit, like, could you give us a couple of examples of the work that you do with, within the, the White Dress Project? Sure. So one example of the work that we do is actually right after shortly after um, Tanika started the organization, um, she actually authored legislation declaring um, July, the month of July, Fibroid Awareness Month, not nationally, but in several cities across the country. However, um, our best part of what our endeavor is, is to make it national. But at the same time, you know, if you listen to the people in this space, um, everybody refers to July as Fibroid Awareness Month. So it seems like it's national, right? Even though it's, there's no ne necessarily any legislation declaring it um, national. Um, so she authored legislation for that. Um, we have done several events across the country, educational events, you know, bringing the women in our community together with our partner physicians. Ultimately, we want to create or we create through our programming a safe space um, for women to share their stories. 
um, because we know that sharing our stories, one, is very healing. Two, it's extremely empowering. I can't tell you the number of messages that we get in our inbox, in our emails, telling us, you know, thank you so much for this platform, um, because I really thought that I was alone. But hearing the stories of women on your platform who are going through the same thing makes me realize that I'm not alone in this. So thank you so much, you know, and that just warms our hearts. You know, if we can impact one life, then we've, we've done our work, you know, and we're impacting so many. So I, I always tell Tamika, I'm so grateful to you um, for the foresight um, in creating this because it's supported me throughout my journey um, as well. So I'm just so grateful to her for, for the work that, you know, she's created here and the movement that she started. Yes. Incredible. And, you know, we, we have listeners who might have extreme periods. Um, I'm wondering what advice you would give someone who's having some symptoms, but struggling to find that diagnosis. And particularly, as you mentioned, 80% of black women experience fibroids. And so for black women and women of color, what advice um, on the diagnosis journey would you, would you offer? Yeah, I mean, I would give this advice to both black women and white women and, you know, other women who may be going through this. I would say, listen to your body, know your body, um, know what is normal and what's not when it comes to heavy menstrual bleeding, you know, changing your pads or your sanitary products every 20, 30 minutes is not normal. If you are getting so tired to the point where, or if your, your periods are so painful to the point that you can't even leave the house, that's not normal. If you're constantly soiling your clothes, that's not normal. So what I would say is know your body, do the research, um, know what is normal, what is not normal. Trust yourself. Don't second guess yourself. If you feel that something is off, then something probably is off. You know, and don't allow anybody, whether it's doctors, whether it's anybody around you to allow you to second guess yourself because it is not all in your head. You're not exaggerating it. You are right. Trust yourself. Um, and also, I would say um, to once you do get the diagnosis to know your condition, do the research on your condition, know the treatment options that exist. Because when it comes to fibroids, for example, there's doctors that only know how to perform one type of procedure and they only tell you about that one type of procedure. They don't inform you about the other options that exist. So do your research, know your options and bring that information to your doctor, be an informed patient. That's the advice that I would give um, to anybody struggling to figure out a diagnosis. And once you are diagnosed um, as well. I mean, mic drop. We're done. Yeah. I think a media clip of like grand applause could go. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Jess and I are over here. Like, I know people can't see us. This is a podcast, but you know, maybe someday we'll have a visual and or a live taping, but we're like clapping hands in the air. <laughs> Yes. Everything you just said, every woman and person who has a uterus who is listening, thanks you for every single thing you just said. My follow-up question, are there any other advocacy tips? It sounds like legislation is part of the mission of the, the White Dress Project, but are there any other advocacy tips that you would give? You know, yeah, I think I would add one more thing to um, everything that I just said is 
and not to force anybody to do this, you know, you have to be ready um, to do this. The importance of sharing your story, you know, sharing your story is such a critical piece of advocacy um, beyond the doctor's office, right? Um, it is so important that people hear our lived experiences because no change can happen without hearing the lived experiences of those that we are trying to affect that change for. You know, we have to know what is going on. We have to know the magnitude of the issue. And the magnitude of the issue comes from us. The stories are our, our, our voices. You know, our stories matter, our voices matter. Um, I feel like we've been silenced for far too long. And it's time for our voices to be heard in this space. Um, so share your story. You know, it is so empowering. It's so liberating. Um, it's so freeing and it really helps to empower others as well um, when they hear the, the stories of other people going through the same challenges. So share your story. It, it's really a, a powerful tool um, and just know your worth, you know, like you are worthy for good, uh, of good health. You know, everybody deserves good health. Everybody deserves to thrive. You know, so pursue your health like you would pursue anything else. Um, so yeah, that's 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 what I say. You know, also, sorry, forgot no, what to say. Do not apologize. Um, <laughs> yeah. Keep going. Um, find a doctor who listens to you. If you are experiencing medical gaslighting and, you know, medical gaslighting can manifest in such subtle ways that you may not even realize that you are being gaslighted. Just re realize that if you have a doctor who is downplaying your symptoms and your condition and telling you it's all in your head, take a Tylenol, all women go through this, you'll be fine, you know, just suck it up drink some wine, you'll be fine. That's gaslighting. Have the courage and the bravery to walk away from a doctor that is not giving you the optimal treatment and care that you deserve and seek out a doctor who would. And we always emphasize as well that, you know, going to the doctor can be extremely intimidating sometimes because they're viewed as an authority in, in this field, right? They have the knowledge, they have the experience, the education, the expertise. But we always emphasize the importance of the fact that our expertise over our own bodies should be held in equal or higher regard to ex the expertise that the doctors have in their field. We need to work in collaboration with our physicians. Our physicians need to work in collaboration with us in our care. It's a partnership. And always remember that when you're seeking care, that your relationship with your physician is a partnership. And that's how your physician should view the relationship as well. So that, that would be my advice in this pursuit of self-advocacy. <laughs> you know, articulation is power and you are so powerful. We need, to, <laughs> <laughs> we need to use pieces of what you said in every episode. This is incredible. I know. I can't even find my words right now. Oh, thank you so much for the platform. Like we appreciate it so much. So thank you. Well, I cannot wait to have Inkem back and to support the White Dress Project. 
And I'm so glad to know that July is Fibroid Awareness Month. We are definitely going to be doing something special for that here on Flow. Yes, we will. And we're going to do something special right now by interviewing the phenomenal Dr. Perkins right after this quick break. Now, a word from Takeda, a proud sponsor of the Flow Podcast Initiative. Takeda is the manufacturer of Von Vendi, Von Willebrand Factor Recombinant. Together, we're committed to connecting you to the resources that can support you throughout your journey and to helping getting the word out to women everywhere. You have a voice, you have a community, and you have our unwavering support. To learn more, visit vonvendi.com. Hello and welcome to Flow. Dr. Perkins, beyond grateful that we could sync for this time with you. I have to say, I personally am a big fan of your work. I have become healthier since following your videos, so thank you. Listeners can check out Dr. Perkins on Instagram and TikTok at callmedoctor.p. That's C-A-L-L-M-E-D-O-C-T-O-R. Then put a dot in there and the letter P. Correct. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, we are thrilled. Uh, Last time on our last episode, we talked specifically about bleeding disorders and what is disordered. So today we want to focus on a couple of other conditions such as PMDD, PCOS. What do all these P's stand for? Fibroids. Uh, And Jess and I also want to acknowledge, and we might hopefully in the future have full episodes devoted to each one of these, but we really wanted to make sure that we continued the conversation around disordered conditions, which is why we have Dr. Perkins here with us today. So Jess, let's jump into it. Yes. Okay. I've got our first 101 class question for you. What are fibroids? the disorder itself, and a little bit about the diagnosis process. Okay, good. Um, So fibroids is a condition that for the most part is benign. And I usually start out by talking about that because oftentimes we as women and females and people with like vaginas, uterus, all of that stuff. So however you classify yourself, whenever you have these pelvic organs, you're always in your mind thinking, okay, could this be cancerous? And so I can tell you that in all the conversations that I have with my patients and therapy, they want to know if this is cancerous or not. So fibroids is a condition that is primarily benign or non-cancerous. And what it means is that there are smooth muscle tumors that, that develop inside of the pelvic region. And I say the pelvic region because we often think of it as just within the uterus, but it can also happen outside of the uterus. And so these collections of smooth muscle cells, um, they kind of form into a ball. And those balls, they kind of live off of the hormones of the menstrual years. So your estrogens, your progesterone, and that is like food to the fibroids. So essentially what happens is that during your menstrual years, the more that you have those hormones that are keep you know, flowing within your system, it causes those balls to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so sometimes women may have them the size of like a raisin, or they can be as large as a basketball. And I can tell you that I've removed everything in between as well. And so the size is not necessarily a reflection of the severity of the symptoms. It's just present, right? So you can really have a fibroid that is the size of like a grape or 
a, an orange and it can cause you probably more problems than one that is the size of like a basketball, for instance. And so um, I can tell you that many women will have these as a, a part of their diagnosis within your reproductive years. And so that um, 70 to 80% of women may have this at some point. And so it's such a common diagnosis, it's such a common problem that we are well aware within the field of GYN of them. Females are well aware of them as well. There's still so much room for research. There's so much we don't know. What do the symptoms look like? If I could just jump in and ask really yeah. quickly. Sorry. And so the symptoms can be different for different people. And the most common I would say is abnormal bleeding. And what that means is that in general, you should have menstrual cycles that are predictable. Okay. And it could be different for different people. So predictable could be every 24 days for one person. It could be every 30 days for another. The days doesn't matter, but what matters is that you know that in 30 days, your cycle should come on. And then you know when your cycles are here, they should last a certain duration. So if it's five days, your cycles are five days apart or last five, five days. If it's three or seven, that's your norm. And so a predictable cycle comes when you expect it to come and last as long as it should, but it also has the consistent flow. Someone with a regular cycle can say that, you know, on days one, two, and three, they're a little bit heavier. On days four and five, they're lighter. And I spot on day six. Someone with an irregular or heavy bleeding cannot tell any of those factors. They're not sure when their periods are going to come. They're not sure if it's going to last three days or 10 or 12 or 15. They're not sure how many heavy days they're going to have, how many light days. Is Their bodies essentially will just do whatever it wants to do. A lot of times fibroids really are not symptomatic and people will have them for many, 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 many years and have no idea that they're there until they either have a problem such as irregular bleeding or they start to have pain, which is another very common symptom, or they for some reason go to the hospital for some random other reason and imaging studies are done like an ultrasound and they're like, oh, voila, you have fibroids. And so for those patients that come in with symptoms such as bleeding or pain, they come in complaining, literally saying that, hey, doctor, my bleeding so heavy. I'm changing my pads every hour. I'm having large blood clots every single time I have a, a cycle. I'm having pain that is just really torturous. They, I cannot function. I can't go to work. I'm stuck in bed. I am taking bottles and bottles of Motrin and I'm not getting any relief. And so those are the common symptoms, the most common symptoms I would say when it comes to fibroids. Not all fibroids are symptomatic. Fibroids can be located in different areas of the uterus. And so the way I explain this to my patients is that if you think of the uterus as having three different layers to it, okay? And so the outer layer is similar to your skin. Okay, so it's like an outer covering. It's a little bit thinner and it's protective. Beneath that or in the middle, you have the muscles. So if you can think of your arm, you have the skin and then you have the muscles like your biceps there and it, it functions by squeezing when you contract it and you relax it. 
And so that's a muscular layer. It is a marvelous part of your uterus. It's the part that stretches when it comes to holding a pregnancy and it contracts to cause a contraction to get that pregnancy or that baby out of the uterus. And so it is an extremely important layer. But even deeper to that is the inner layer. This is where the terms endometrium comes from or endometrial um, layer. And so that layer is one of the most active layers of the uterus. This is the area that thickens in between your cycles preparing for a pregnancy, right? It creates a very luscious, a very um, full of energy and food and refreshments for a pregnancy to develop. When a pregnancy does not occur after ovulation, that layer sheds and causes a menstrual cycle. So that inner layer is the one that continues to thicken and thin, thin every single menstrual cycle and bleeding is directly affected by that layer. Whenever you have a fibroid that's located in that layer, you essentially will have a lot of bleeding problems because the fibroid is intermingling with the tissues of that layer. And when bleeding occurs with the menstrual cycle, it can bleed heavily because the fibers are either blocking your body from stopping bleeding when it's time to stop bleeding, or fibroids come with their own blood vessels, so they do their own bleeding as well. So they can bleed heavily, irrespective of what your hormones and your body is telling your inside layer to how to function and act. Your fibroids will just do whatever they want to do. And so when they're in that layer, they have free reign to be like, oh, we, we normally bleed. We will bleed some more this month and we'll bleed a little bit more next month. And so those women or people are usually the ones that have the biggest problems with symptoms. When the fibroids are in the muscular layer, sometimes it can cause problems with your pain levels, but not necessarily bleeding. When it's on the outer skin layer, these people have no issues in general. You can have large fibroids that are hanging off of it or sitting on it, and they will never know. And because it's really not causing them any problems. But that inner layer, that's the one that makes the biggest of a difference. And so it doesn't matter the size of the fibroid. It doesn't matter if you have 15 fibroids. Usually the one that is affecting that inner layer is the one that causes you the most problems. I could visualize every element of the yes. uterus we're talking about. Thank you for that educational capsule right there. Wow. To, to move us on, I feel like this is jeopardy a little bit. Some of the symptoms <laughs> you, you mentioned almost sound like I could answer with this question. What is PMDD? Okay, so PMDD now is another um, aspect of symptoms that go along with your menstrual cycles. Can I ask you a quick question? What does PMDD stand for? <laughs> no, that just dawned on me. I'm like, we just, we always use all these acronyms, right? So I'm Dr. Dr. P, do you mind telling us what it stands for? Yes. So I, I will first talk about PMS. Okay. okay perfect. So that we can kind of understand what the differences between them and how this falls in line with everything that we're talking about. Okay. So PMS, we learn about when we start talking about cycles, right? Because we anticipate that based on premenstrual syndrome, okay, that before pre menstrual, your cycle, you can have some changes that may affect your overall well-being. So your mind, psychologically, 
physically, you might have some cramps and aches and pains and things that are not so nice. Um, and then your cycles come. And so PMS is expected to some degree, right? But it's a, it's a very low level of um, disruption to your day, okay? These people can just take some Motrin and they're okay. They might only need to take it once and they're fine, they can function normally. There are some people now that the disruption that occurs right before their cycles are greater than someone with just premenstrual syndrome, okay? And so this next tier is where PMDD comes in, okay? And this is now when there is a dysphoric disorder or premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And what that really means is that these people cannot function before their cycles come. They're having behavioral issues in addition to physical issues. They're having depression. They're having severe pain. They're having problems with their bodies swelling. They're having irritation. Some of them are so angry that it's almost difficult to deal with these people during that time frame because their emotions and their character is just out the window. And so it's, they cannot function at all. And so it's a more severe version of PMS. And how it sounds like that diagnosis process might be dependent on what? Like, is it the patient looking for an answer to their experience being so severe? You know, at some point after people speak with their friends, they're just like, how are you able to function when you have your menstrual cycle? Because I can't function. I can't do anything. I'm locked up in a room on so much medication. And then the friends will be like, okay, well, that's not normal. And so I find that the social atmosphere really kind of, when people talk about it more, they realize that, you know, I might not be so normal and this might not be as typical. And so they start talking and they come in and they're like, well, I feel like I have more of a problem than I thought before. And so it is through open conversation with your doctor, open conversation. One of my biggest goals is to help people to have that conversation with their doctors. You should be able to have a safe place where you, you shouldn't have to go to Google. I'm not, I love Google. It's, it plays a very, very, very important part because I want you to learn on your own. But when you come into that four doors with a physician, I want you to be able to speak of all of these things and realize that what you think is normal is not necessarily normal. You should not be able, you should be able to live your life when you're on your cycle. You shouldn't have to go through packs and packs of pads and, and tampons on one cycle. That is not normal. So when you speak to your doctor and be as open as you can be, tell them everything that happens. You should be able to have that relationship so that you can talk about it and so that more investigation can be done. The most important thing is that you are the person experiencing this, not the doctor. And so the amount of dysfunction that you have in your typical day is important because it's real to you and not to the doctor. So you have to explain that to them and you should not be dismissed by them because what you're experiencing is real. And so that conversation is important. And so once you have that relationship, as providers, we will be able to say, okay, well, maybe this is no longer a PMS. 
maybe you need a little bit more than just some Motrin to kind of help you go through this. Thank you so much. And this is something that we continue to hear from all of the doctors that we interview um, is that, you know, patients are their best experts. They need to share what they're experiencing with their doctor. Thank you for, for highlighting that. So moving on to our, you know, through our Jeopardy game, um, (laughs) what is PCOS and what does that acronym stand for? Okay, so PCOS is a different ball game altogether. Okay, and so it's polycystic ovarian syndrome. And PCOS, you know, it's, it could be, it's a very difficult disease. And I'll tell you why. Um, One diagnosis is very difficult. And the reason is, it is a syndrome. And what a syndrome encompasses is multiple different things that all play a part together. And so it's a syndrome. So when you think of ADD or ADHD, it's a syndrome. You can have autism as a syndrome, which means it's not, it doesn't affect just one area of your life, one aspect of your body. It encompasses a bunch of different things together. And so oftentimes people will think that, okay, it just means that I have a lot of cysts on my ovaries. It does not. There is PCO, which is a many cysts on your ovaries, and that's it. That means that when you look on that person's ultrasound, which is the best image and format for your pelvic region, for the reproductive area. And so when you look on your pelvic ultrasound and you see larger cysts or more cysts than the typical or average person would have, then you can say you have polycystic ovaries. When you say polycystic ovarian syndrome, you are now looking at having irregular and abnormal cycles. And that's just one aspect of it. Most people with this may have less than nine cycles per year, okay? So your cycles are greater than 35, 36 days apart. And so instead of you having one every month, which would be at least 12, you're having maybe four or five, maybe six per year, you can have abnormal bleeding during that time frame, okay? And what happens with that? I normally explain it as having that inside layer of your uterus that we talked about before. In between your cycles, that inside layer gets thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker. When you ovulate and you do not get pregnant, that egg dying causes your body to prepare for a cycle, okay? And so then that layer with your cycle sheds off and gets thin again. Over the course of the next month, you ovulate again. And while you're ovulating, waiting for that beautiful sperm to show up and conceive, if that does not happen, your egg dies and then your cycle comes and that layer gets thinner. When you do not ovulate, essentially that marker to tell your body that the egg died, it's time for you to shed, doesn't happen. And so those people, that inside layer of the uterus just keeps getting thicker and thicker and thicker because there's nothing to indicate to it that it's time to have a cycle because you never ovulated that egg. So that egg never died and the hormones never changed to cause you to bleed. So then they ovulate three months later. 
And if you can imagine it, that inside layer of the uterus has just been getting thicker for three months. So when you do have that bleed now, you have so much to bleed off. And your uterus is trying to clear off all of that thickness that you have more cramping and pain. And so now you're filling up those pads in an hour or two hours. Now you're bleeding so much you're getting blood clots. Now you're cramping so much you're going through the bottles of the Motrin. And so these people with PCOS, they're also having these heavy bleeding on all of their cycles, however many times they come. In addition to that, their system is affected by this, right? And so these people also have problems with insulin resistance. And so this kind of walks into another realm where we're talking about possible diabetes and having problems with sugar and glucose in the system. Your body is not able to process this normally. And then this leads into having weight issues because what happens is that if you're taking in all of these nutrients, these macronutrients, and your, your body's not using it well, it goes into storage, which turns into fat storage. And then now you're not only gaining an excessive amount of weight, but now it's difficult to reverse that. And so people with PCOS, they really need to be on a certain strict diet in order to get to their weight goals, in order to make their condition and their syndrome better. And so it becomes a very complex situation that really incorporates discipline on the patient side in addition to working very well with their providers to kind of get that balance so that their overall condition would be better. I'm sure that's so complicated because they don't feel well. So, you know, when we don't feel well, we don't want to exercise. We don't want to eat well. Yeah. Yes. And that's why it's also a behavioral um, problem because it plays on the psyche right? It plays on the mind and it's very, very, very difficult because it's almost like you're chasing your tail. You want to get better. You need to get better. You can't because it's hard for you to find that motivation inside of you to do better. Or even when you're trying, you realize that it's very difficult. It's not really working. And then you give up and then you get bigger and then it's more hormonal issues and it just keeps going around and around and we're just going in the wrong direction. And so at some point we need to really work together to get you onto a system. And I normally say we want to trust the process. And if you, in those worst days that you have, the days that you're not motivated, the days that you just don't want to do this anymore, you want to give up, in those tough moments, you say, you know, I'm still going to work on it. If you keep doing that, we'll have less of those failure days, okay? Because we all fail every day at something, but we'll have less and less of them over time. And then we start achieving our goals. The other part of PCOS that I also wanted to mention is what we call androgenism. So essentially what it means is that you have an excessive amount of what we call androgens in our system. And what that means is that females should have a certain amount of male hormones in addition to female hormones. Males are supposed to have a certain amount of male hormones in addition to female hormones. So both sexes will have both, but females should have a smaller, a very small amount of male hormones, testosterone. In PCOS, 
there is often a higher amount of that testosterone compared to the average female. And so what happens is that signs of this would be having excessive hair growth, excessive hair growth on the face, on the chest, on the upper thighs, on the arms. And it's noticeably different. You know, some of these people wax to literally take off layers and layers of hair off of their face or different parts of their body because there's just so much and it's so thick. In addition to that, they may have male pattern baldness, right? So they're starting to lose hair in a certain pattern that is not typical for a female. And so that plays into the PCOS, you know, outlook altogether. And so when I say that it's a syndrome because it affects so many different portions of your life and internal organs, that's what I mean. I get chills. I mean, yeah, thank you so much. You are a wonderful teacher. We had a question on our YouTube channel and about absent periods, which we're like, well, here we are talking about extreme periods and we think about heavy bleeding and pain. We didn't think about absent periods. Do you mind talking about those for a minute? It is, you know, it's, there are a couple of different ways to look at this, but absent periods are scary for people, extremely scary because especially if they were having regular periods and then all of a sudden they stop and they're just like, wait a second, that is a sign of my womanhood or, you know, being female. And it's just like, that's a part of me. That's who I am. So it's not coming. And I know I'm not pregnant. And so that's usually where we start. We say, well, let's just make sure you're not pregnant. And I can tell you this happens for people who are having sex with people who are not. And they're just like, well, doc, I know I'm not pregnant. I haven't had sex in like two years. Like, I know this isn't the case, but you know, as providers, we need to make sure. (laughs) So I know I'm like, I do believe you, but just give me a little bit of urine. Let me just go check really quick. And then after we, after that, we talk about, well, what are the different reasons why this can happen? And so our bodies are set up in a way that bleeding comes from the uterus, right? The ovaries communicate with the, the uterus to tell it to go ahead and have a bleed, okay? But the ovaries don't function on their own. They are getting messages and instructions from the brain, okay? And so there's something called an HPO axis. And what that is, is that we have the hormones, the hypothalamus in the brain, that releases hormones to the ovaries, okay? And then the ovaries will then communicate with the uterus. Any break in that system between the three can cause you to not have a period. But also other hormones like the thyroid can play a part in that as well. So once we have a patient that says, I'm not having periods again, it's called amenorrhea start to do an investigation where we check the hormones of the brain, like the prolactin and the pituitary, to see if it's functioning normally. We check the ovaries and the hormones that are coming from the ovaries to make sure that they're functioning well. We check the thyroid to make sure that there are no thyroid disorders, hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism. And then we also structurally check the uterus to make sure that there are not physical things that are blocking periods from happening. Very few women will have a blockage somewhere in the system that they're having cycles, but it's not coming out. And so that is a real thing where essentially your 
cycle and your periods are just building up on the inside of the uterus. And it's just no way for it to actually come on out. And sometimes it could be after surgical procedure where you create scar tissue to prevent that from happening. Or this could be something that happens to people who never had a period in their life. And now they're like 15, 16, 17 years old. And they're just like, well, all of my friends have periods. Why is it I haven't had one yet? And so sometimes there could be structural things that they were born with that is actually blocking that period from coming out, okay? And so there's so many different levels. And so we started the investigation process and then based on the information that we're finding, either physically through an ultrasound or hormonally through lab work, we can start to go down any of these, so many different paths that can actually cause a blockage or no cycles from happening. Again, we could talk to you all day, but Jessica <laughs> and I want to respect your time. Honored to have you here on Flow. Thank you. We are. Thank so you. thank you so thank much you. for your time. Well, thank goodness we can keep learning from Dr. P. That's call me Dr. Dot P. Truly I'm a smarter person for getting to speak with her. Oh my gosh. Just been obsessed since finding her online. A doctor who can also teach in the way she does? Oh, a gift. Truly, it's the most winning of combos that she's able to carry out medical intelligence and let us all in on feeling like that information and that intelligence is accessible. And she's offering so much great education on Instagram. Which reminds me, I um I saw this meme on Instagram, Christy, that said, sorry, I haven't been in touch. I've been figuring out what's going on with my body. Ugh. It's an right? <laughs> it's an important and sometimes arduous task to figure out what's going on with our own bodies. So, Christy, I'm wondering if for Christy's tips this episode, could you hit us with some ideas of how to figure out what the heck is going on with this body? Yes. I'm going to give a couple of quick tips that are specific to a couple of things that we heard on this episode. So the first would be like if you have heavy periods or you're experiencing something uh, that we've discussed with Dr. P today, keep track of, of what's going on. So when you go to your doctor, you can say, this is how many pads I went through, or this is how many tampons that I went through. So you're tracking your symptoms. You're tracking how much you're bleeding in, or not just bleeding, but also the symptoms you're experiencing. So cramps, what helps make it better? What what makes it worse? Really thinking about that. There's also an app that I would love to recommend called Blood Sisterhood. It's It's from the Hemophilia Federation of America. And if you want to search for it, it's just look up Sisterhood app and it will help you to keep track of your period and how many pads you're going through. And it's so easy. You just click a little button and it helps you keep track of all of that. So we'll put that in the show notes. And then we also heard a tip about family history in this episode. So I have a guide that can help you talk to your family about your family's medical history. Um, and just a quick little statistic, it can help you get a, a proper diagnosis up to 90% faster if you know you have a history of something in your family. So colon cancer runs in my family, or if you have high blood pressure, high, high blood pressure. Exactly. Yeah, Thanks yeah. for throwing that out there. There are so many. We'll attach my worksheet um, as well. And last but not least, I think because, uh, you know, we had two 
amazing individuals on this time who we found on social media. There are such incredible resources out there for people. So let's recommend them, follow them, be empowered and educated by these incredible resources that we can find on Instagram or Facebook. The only little caveat that I put here is that make sure that you know, they're credible. Is it an actual nonprofit? Is is this a real doctor that I'm following? So just do a little bit of homework to make sure that the, the education that you're getting, the information that you're receiving is accurate. Those are my tips for this time around. Thank you. Those are such great tips. You know, if you're going to get stuck in the scroll hole on your phone, it's great if your feed is going to be filled with credible, reliable information. I'm going to work on my feed right now. But before we go, Christy, I know I'm not crazy. Can you tell me why? Oh. Come here, baby. What do you think you are? You are not crazy. Crazy or something? Yeah. Okay. So this time around on You're Not Crazy, we're going to talk about where this idea that women are crazy actually came from. And that is Dr. Sigmund Freud. Did you know that we have him to thank for this? I know he's famous. Tell me more about him. Before him, hysteria was really known as more of a neurological problem. You know, like our uterus was traveling throughout our bodies, causing us to go crazy. And he took that and turned it into a psychological problem. And this was really the root cause of this, quote unquote, it's all in our heads mentality. And it's why we continue to be ignored, dismissed when we go to doctor's offices. It's a problem that persists. So we owe this all to Freud. Um, Not all, but, you know, a little bit, a lot. Yeah. Mental, truly mental. I mean, theory and psychology and everything is constantly evolving. So presumably that this was his best analysis, but it was dead wrong. It was so dead wrong. And they removed this. They removed hysteria from the diagnostic manual in 1950. But we know, we know that women are still referred to as hysterical today. Yeah, we have a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. I I do love good resources. And Christy, your training that I'm going through right now is incredible. Learning about hysteria and the horrific history is something that we'll just have to continue to unpack here on For sure. I can't wait, but I will. I will. I'll wait till next month. Remember, folks, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram. I'm at Jessica Lauren Richmond. Christy is at How to Talk to Your Doctor. And uh, we'll see you next month, next flow. Subscribe, rate, and share flow. Referrals from you are the best way to reach new people. Share your story with us. Do you have an experience of extreme cyclical bleeding? We believe sharing those stories will support an increase of medical research and social acceptance. And thanks to our sponsor Takeda for their support of flow. Flow was produced by Bloodstream Media and supported by Takeda. Shout out to creative director Amy Board and Flo's hosts, Jessica Richmond and Christy Van Horn. Flo was edited by me, Colby Crow. Our next available episode will be May 13th. Hey, that's the day after I start menstruating. <laughs>